Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Poetry Space. I'm really excited to get into today looking at everybody's favorite poems. I know we've touched on before our first poems that we ever loved, but this should be a deeper dive into what makes a favorite poem a favorite poem. So I'm going to invite Tim to be co-host. It worked last week, so we'll see if it, <laughs> if it also works this week. If not, we have a pretty solid backup plan with me being just a couple of rooms away from him. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Katie, I'm doing good. It lists you as a co-host, so I'd say we're off to another good start this week. I think it works. We solved the problem. I just can't click too fast. I can't be too excited. I have to stay chill. <laughs> Usually that's my problem, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start with an opening poem. It's a bit longer, so we'll jump right in. But, uh, but this poem... Um, I don't know. There's, it's hard to figure out what your favorite poem is. A lot of people mention this, and, and I think it is my favorite poem too, maybe. Um, and, and it makes me cry almost every time. So we'll see if I get through it without crying. And not for like the sadness, but for the, there's really a deep truth, maybe the deepest truth about humanity that it tells. That um, the way in which we all try to be good and fail inevitably, and then that the universe still sings for us or something that, that and that's what God sort of stands in for. Um, and there's something, uh, there's something to this poem that just gets me every time. It is song by Bridget P. Jean Kelly. So here we go. Song. Listen, there was a goat's head hanging by ropes in a tree all night. It hung there and sang and those who heard it felt a hurt in their hearts and thought they were hearing the song of a night bird. They set up in their beds, and then they lay back down again. In the night wind, the goat's head swayed back and forth, and far off it shone faintly the way the moonlight shone on the train track miles away beside which the goat's headless body lay. Some boys had hacked its head off. It was harder work than they had imagined. The goat cried like a man and struggled hard, but they finished the job. They hung the bleeding head by the school and then ran off into the darkness that seems to hide everything. The head hung in the tree. The body lay by the tracks. The head called to the body, the body to the head. They missed each other. This, the missing grew large between them until it pulled the heart right out of the body, until the drawn heart flew toward the head, flew as a bird flies back to its cage in the familiar perch from which it trills. Then the heart sang in the head, softly at first and then louder, sang long and low until the morning light came up over the school and over the tree, and then the singing stopped. The goat had belonged to a small girl. She named the goat Broken Thorn Sweet Blackberry, named it after the night's bush of stars because the goat's silky hair was dark as well water, because it had eyes like wild fruit. The girl lived near a high railroad track. At night, she heard the trains passing, the sweet sound of the train's horn pouring softly over her bed, and each morning she woke to give the bleeding goat his pail of warm milk. She sang him songs about girls with ropes and cooks and boats. She brushed him with a stiff brush. She dreamed daily that he grew bigger, and he did. She thought her dreaming made it so. But one night, the girl didn't hear the train's horn, and the next morning she woke to an empty yard. The goat was gone. Everything looked strange. It was as if a storm had passed through while she slept, wind and stones, rain stripping the branches of fruit. She knew that someone had stolen the goat and that he had come to harm. She called to him. All morning and into the afternoon, she called and called. She walked and walked. 
in her chest a bad feeling like the feeling of the stones gouging the soft undersides of her bare feet. Then somebody found the goat's body by the high tracks, the flies already filling their soft bottles at the green goat's torn neck. Then somebody found the head hanging in a tree by the school. They hurried to take these things away so that the girl would not see them. They hurried to raise money to buy the girl another goat. They hurried to find the boys who had done this, to hear them say it was a joke, a joke, it was nothing but a joke. But listen, here's the point. The boys thought to have their fun and be done with it. It was harder work than they had imagined, the silly sacrifice. But they finished the job, whistling as they washed their large hands in the dark. What they didn't know was that the goat's head was already singing behind them in the tree. What they didn't know was that the goat's head would go on singing just for them, long after the ropes were down, and that they would learn to listen, pail after pail, stroke after patient stroke. They would wake in the night thinking they heard the wind in the trees or a night bird, but their hearts beating harder. There would be a whistle, a hum, a high murmur, and at last a song. The low song, a lost boy sings remembering his mother's call. Not a cruel song, no, no, not a cruel at all. This song is sweet. It is sweet. The heart dies of this sweetness. What a beautiful reading that was, Tim. Wow. Oh, I'm like, I'm crying too. It's such a, it's such a gorgeous poem. I remember the first time that uh, you told me about this poem. Um, I don't know, it was about nine months or something, and I hadn't encountered it before. And it is such so profound, the depth that with which it reaches and, and the extended metaphor, I think, for just how humanity uh, tends tends to function and is that why it's one of your favorite poems yeah i think it captures everything that a poem should try to do or like could try to do you know it's like the biggest piece of humanity there in that poem um, which is sort of the god and the god being missing now especially in the modern world makes it so um you know powerfully important too that we still have this i mean that you know that the, the symbolism of it and the sort of the way that story works to draw out meaning that we can't quite get to yet. And I think it's just, it's just a great poem. Yeah. I also think that, I mean, to, to break it down into craft, which maybe is sort of like, you know, not good in terms of breaking down the magic that we're seeing, but I mean, the images of it are obviously so visceral and, and so impactful, but at the same time too, like, you know, if you were just told what this poem was about, it would be maybe easy to, to verge into like melodrama or go too far. And it never feels like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really just great storytelling. I mean, it's what it you know purely is. It doesn't have, you know, I, I don't know if anybody, you know, looks at the at the poem just now as I was reading it, but it doesn't have any, you know, fancy line breaks anywhere special that's worrying about that. It uh, just has lines of a certain length kind of going through telling the story. And, you know, just such a profound important story do you remember the first time that you encountered that poem um i think it was um i'm not even sure it was a long time ago like maybe in college or maybe i don't know maybe reading on my own i used to read a lot now i read submissions <laughs> so yeah i'm not sure and i always uh, i meant to uh, do an interview with bridget and then uh, she passed away kind of younger than expected unfortunately Oh, that was a beautiful poem, and thanks for starting off with that really good reading. I'm like now kind of nervous if I end up reading a poem later in the space after how <laughs> well you read that, but there we are. That's the danger of reading after you. <laughs> oh, thanks, Anna. I, it's a hard poem to get through. I, I really, reading out loud, I, I cry a little bit every time. Oh, that's beautiful. 
Well, um, I wanted to, too, before we open up the floor a little bit more, just talk about the nature of favorites in general, because I know your thoughts on that. I remember when I was getting to know you, and I was like, well, what's your favorite food? What <laughs> You had some opinions on being asked that kind of question. Yeah, I just don't understand the concept, and I've always really wondered about it. Like, I always wonder if people are just, like, sort of faking it. Or if that they have a stronger emotional connection to things that I do, or like a like a more of a nostalgia. I mean, there's I recognize great things, but it's so hard to have a favorite. But like my daughter will always be like, "What's your favorite color this week, Dad?" You know, back when she was littler, and um, and I just kind of like threw out like, "Oh, green, I guess," because I didn't know what else to say. And I feel like that anytime anybody asks me a favorite, like you know, there's certain poems that do certain things that are just wonderful, or certain anything that I like. I mean, I love green when the grass is green. I don't love green when the bread's moldy. <laughs> you know, so how can green be my favorite color? It makes no sense to me. And it's the same way with poems. Like there's certain poems that make you feel a certain way and are powerful for a personal reason, but there's so many and I don't know how you can have a favorite. It makes, it makes so little sense to me in, in any regard. And then uh, my daughter too uh, is always like, you know, what color is math? <laughs> she likes to say like you know what color is the you know certain emotions or th I just have no idea I don't know if I'm missing that part of my brain that makes these like connections that make no sense but I can't and so in the same way I don't really understand favorites what, what about you do you have like an emotional attachment or emo like a like what makes something a favorite I don't really understand well I think I mean, with getting to the emotional attachment, first of all, I love talking to your daughter about things like what color is math, because I think it's fascinating. <laughs> so if you want to tag TV into that conversation, I'll have it every day of the week. But, but for me, I think that it's, um, specifically when it comes to poems, what reaches me on the most profound level, and that also, not only that, but reaches me on a very deep level that I keep coming back to, that hits me in a new way every time, too. So it's, um, it's kind of like, if you ask me what my favorite ice cream is, <laughs> I would probably <laughs> yeah. say caramel because it goes with everything and it's delicious on its own. Like it can hit so many different levels all at once. So it's something that has like the broadest reach to me too. And that I like the most in the most contexts. Whereas for me with poems, that's how I feel too. It is really hard with favorites, particularly for mm -hmm. this space, because so much of what I'm doing is bringing up my favorite poems week after week you know, in, in different contexts, mm -hmm. it's just what we're, what we're drawn to and what we're trying to do. But I do appreciate your nuanced take on inability to have a favorite, but it's also, well, I, think, I think, uh, <laughs> I think it's a great way to think of favorites. And it actually, you know, that's how we read, especially for the Rattle Poetry Prize, which is going on right now, all those, you know, 5,000 entries. You know, what you do is you go through and you read every poem, pull out the ones you want to read again, then you're down to like 500 or something. And then you read them again and pull out the ones you want to read again. And then the winner is the poem that you read over and over again and it never gets boring, you know? And so maybe that's, that's a good definition. I think that it's something that, that stays strong and resonant over time and, and adds to it every time you read it rather than subtract. Maybe that's a good, a good way to quantify. Um, I, I hate to have to you know, have some kind of empirical way of quantifying everything, but that's how I think, I guess, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it because it is how I, how I look at it. Like, and also for me, a favorite poem is something, it's different from the episode we did on First Loves too, in so much as a favorite poem is one that you keep turning back to or like, I don't know for you, but if I encounter one uh, that is in that, like say, I don't know, top 50 poems I've, I've ever read type category is probably the level we're talking about. 
I encounter that poem and I'm like, oh yes, I get to read this poem again. And it's kind of that level, that level of excitement for me, or like, you know, also the kind of thing where lines from that poem will just pop into your head when you're out and about being reminded of that poem is something that comes up for me too. Yeah, it was interesting. That's a good point about, you know, how it's different from First Loves, like that older episode we did, because one of the things on my Facebook tr thread that a few people mentioned was proof rock. And, but then both people, I think, who brought it up said that it was sort of like a teenager poem. It was like a gateway poem. It was a brilliant poem that was sort of perfect for that time in your life where you're like a late teens, early 20s and kind of lost a little bit. And then, you know, being older now, it's not your favorite poem anymore, but it, like it was. And, and that's exactly how I feel about Proof Rock too. And so maybe there's a way that, um, you know, that, that a first, the first poem you fall in love with might not be your favorite, but it still has a, a lot of attachment to it anyway. Yeah, I think that, that is, uh, that's definitely the case. And I, I do have poems I feel like I've, I've kind of aged out of. But um, one poet that I feel like is uh, someone I had never aged out of and I just get continually more out of is, uh, is Billy Collins. And in fact, uh, Dick Westheimer, he sent in two poems that he was interested in reading today. And one of them is Velocity by Billy Collins. So I was hoping that Dick, you'd be up for sharing that poem. I can't wait to hear it in your voice also when you send it in. I just think your voice is going to be awesome reading this poem. So I'd love it if you could share it with us. Uh, thanks. Um, I'll, I'll share it with you. And can I uh, take a moment to share how I came across it? I would love you to explain the velocity of mm -hmm. you coming to find Velocity the poem. <laughs> Okay. Um, so as many of you know, I'm kind of new to uh, poetry world. And, you know, friends had shared popular poems with me and somebody shared uh, at some point in the last 10 years to my favorite 17 year old high school girl, which is a very clever, wonderful Billy Collins poem. And so when I started writing poetry in 2017, I thought maybe I should go buy a poetry book and so I went to the local bookstore, if you remember those, and went into a, a bookstore and there was a Billy Collins book and I took it down off the shelf and it had nice sort of crinkly paper. And I said, that looks like a poetry book. And I opened it up and the second poem in the book was Velocity. And I went, oh my goodness, is this what I have been missing? Like reading these things that sort of change your life even for a moment when you read them. So that's how I came across Velocity. Velocity. In the club car that morning, I had my notebook on my lap and my pen uncapped, looking every inch the writer, right down to the little writer's frown on my face. But there was nothing to write about, except life and death and the low warning sound of the train whistle. I did not want to write about the scenery that was flashing past, cows spread over a pasture, hay roll, rolled up meticulously, things you see once and will never see again. But I kept my pen moving by drawing over and over again the face of a motorcyclist in profile for no reason I can think of, a biker with sunglasses, and a weak chin, leaning forward, helmetless, his long, thin hair trailing behind him in the wind. I also drew many lines to indicate speed, 
to show the air becoming visible as it broke over the biker's face, the way it was breaking over the face of the locomotive that was pulling me towards Omaha and wherever lay, whatever lay beyond Omaha for me. All the other stops to make before the time would arrive to stop for good. We must always look at things from the point of view of eternity, the college theologians used to insist, from which I imagine we would all appear to have speed lines trailing behind us as we rush along the road of the world, as we rush down the long tunnel of time, the biker, of course, drunk on the wind, but also the man reading by a fire, speed lines coming off his shoulders in his book, and the woman standing on the beach studying the curve of the horizon, and even the child asleep on a summer night, speed lines flying from the posters of her bed, from the white tips of the pillowcases, from the and from the edges of her perfectly motionless body. Uh, that was a beautiful reading, Dick. Thanks for sharing that poem. And I really do love it. It's quintessentially Billy Collins, that kind of poem, and how he, I think one of the reasons that he is perhaps the most famous male poet alive, at least in my opinion, is that he really reaches you know, out so far and this far in so many of his poems. And there's always so much to come back to. And he, of course, does that through you know, wonderful images that keep the momentum going and literally in a poem about velocity as well. <laughs> well, and I, I was, t you know, it's, it's a strange point to be totally absorbed in the poem, but when he talked about the weak chin of the bite motor, you know, what a, what a, what a sort of strange detail to tease out, but it, it's things like that, that, that just suck me into, into poems like his. So, um, I, I appreciate having the opportunity to read it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I love the weak chin too, but I thought that was more of like a little bit like not something other people would be as drawn to. That's my favorite detail of the poem as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, maybe because it's so, it's like offbeat, you know, it, it, it's a, and, and, you know, it gets you a little bit wondering what a weak chin is, but not enough to get out of the poem. It's just, to me, it's a masterful poem. It's beautiful music, and it's a beautiful, you know, wonderful journey from, from, you know, here and there and everywhere. Yeah, and I think the week ten too works so well for me too because it is it's gritty. You know, there's this tendency, obviously, in poetry to stay with the beautiful and the serene images that people kind of think of with poetry, but Billy Collins always works some grit in there. And, and some some darkness, I think, or something less than ideal. It's not just the romantic biker image. You know, he's got like, you know, he doesn't have the best chin, that biker. And yeah. uh, it makes it stronger to me as well. So is there something about this particular poem or Billy Collins style in general that, uh, that you find bringing to your own work? Well, um, I think it goes back to somewhat, uh, you know, the rattle ethos of kind of utterly plain speaking. You know that that there there you are you are lulled into the sense of the ordinary by by the plain speaking of the poem, and I also like the whole notion, and I think I heard this on a rattlecast once, of being handed a hot cup of coffee handle first, 
So here he is in the club car. You know, it's that very sort of lulling introduction that nobody would think this is going to be a MFA poem. You know, this is not going to be that high school poem that bored me to death. Um, And all of his poems, I think, do a great job of putting, or I shouldn't say all, but the ones that I like, do a great job of putting you into the middle of the poem with the most ordinary uh, introduction that has uh, everything to do with what is going to wind up the poem being about and nothing to do about it at all. Just a, a quick four lines of introduction. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it is, you know, his style is so widely emulated, but it really is hard to strike a casual tone. Um, you know, I, there are a lot of times that I read a poem and I'm like, that is a weak version of a Billy Collins poem because people try it because it's so effective. It seems like it should be easy to write. And in fact, it, it's obviously not. <laughs> well, well, he also salts it with, with amazing craft and, you know, these slant rhymes that come at you and keep you entrained in the poem so that so that you are propelled into the into the uh in into the journey of the poem by the you know the his choices of of you know how he crafts his lines yeah that's a great point i noticed some of the internal rhymes when you're reading that poem and it was really beautiful and it did offer um really nice propulsion propulsion forward yeah all right well that was great thanks for sharing that Dick and why don't we move next to Attractive Fahey, who I think has a Dorian Locke poem that she posted, I think, over on Facebook, but I'm hoping that she could share it with us today. So how are you doing, Attracta? Hi, Katie, Tim, and everyone. Um, I'm good. Tomorrow is my birthday, by the way. I may as well say it. I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> so um, I'm taking it easy here this evening. I, I was thinking about favorite poems because it's so hard to pick, and I was thinking, well, what makes a favorite poem? a favorite poem and I think for myself it's it depends on the mood or where I'm at in life or what speaks to me at a particular time isn't isn't that what it is and and I was thinking as a child I loved poetry and I think it kind of saved me because I was quite a lonely child not that that would have been I, I was kind of I had a sociability but I was very lonely and I found poetry met that part and I think I still search for that and when I find it in a poem that's what speaks to me the strongest, you know, in that I can love other poems, but they may not touch that part. But I think for me, the favourite poem will always be the one that speaks to that part. And I think this poem by Dorian Law, and there are many um, poems, but I think the one by Dorian Law, Dust, um, speaks to that part. So I'll read it. Someone spoke to me last night, told me the truth. Just a few words but I recognised it. I knew I should make myself get up, write it down, but it was too late and I was exhausted from working all day in the garden, moving rocks. Now I remember only the flavour, not like food, sweet or sharp, more like a fine powder, like dust. And I wasn't elated or frightened, but simply wrapped aware. That's how it is sometimes. God comes to your window, all bright light and black wings, and you're just too tired to open it. There you are. So 
I think I know it, it, it's a poem that probably is about when we get a line, we don't write it down. But for me, it's more about a presence being there with us all the time and the comfort of that and knowing that and not always being able to be in tune with that. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. And that was a beautiful reading. I think you mentioned on Facebook that you just happened to pick up one of her books when you were visiting in the States and, yeah. and read it. And this is the poem you like the best. I know. I actually, I had read that poem and I'd listened to her on the Rattlecast because I'd heard her somewhere and I went back looking in Rattlecast. If I like a poet, I go looking to see her there in Rattlecast for the interview. So I found it and I, I could play that anytime. But then I opened up a tab and I don't know what it was saying to me, but I needed the comfort of that poem for for quite a while. And then I still love that poem, but I'll, I'll find another one. I love Lee Young Lee. I think you've amazing poets in America that that have that quality that I speak about. And I think it's maybe more the narrative that they use sometimes. I mean, there are in Ireland as well, but sometimes the narrative isn't as clear in poetry. And And the poet for me as a child was Yeats. And funny, you were talking about Billy Collins because I know that, you know, his admiration for Yeats and it wouldn't look like he was, it wouldn't be obvious his is the influence from Yeats. But in some way, I think it's it's very obvious in another way, like Yeats spoke, spoke in the language of his time. That was, and he was moving it, moving the language to be more kind of um, flow, you know, sort of like um, Dick said it there, you know, that it's not going to be something out of, you know, um, an academic background. But um, it's like Yeats dances with your imagination. He throws in the image and pulls from your psyche. And in a way, Billy Collins does that too. He dances around. I mean, he it's like the nursery rhyme, the, the, what's it, the, the cat jumped over the moon. He could be writing a poem about a cat jumping over the moon and he has you in touch with images in your imagination pulling at the heart. There's there's just something. Well, this is the bit, isn't it, that everyone will talk about the what you cannot describe. Words can't describe that that feeling. And I think Billy has that way of getting in that Yeats had as well, where you're carried along in that dance. And yet there's so much going in the sound, the rhythm and all of that is tuning into the soul. I think I'm someone who looks for soul and where's the soul in this poem for me, for me, because obviously it's coming from soul, but it's the resonance with the soulful, you know, what speaks to you. Sorry, I'm waffling. I'm, I don't know my I think it's my psychotherapy background. I tend to look a bit deep at something like that. And I think it's important these days because, you know, um, things can move away from soul very easily. I see it in psychotherapy, you know, that we go more into solution and we respond to society, you know, the capitalism and everything else. And it's really important to do the work of soul. And I struggle with it because I can feel it. But to write it is a very different thing. You know, anyway, I better stop talking. Are you all gone? Oh, sorry. I can't tell if Tim's mic is working or not. And I thought he going to be the one who replied to that. I'm getting a request. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's all right. All I thought, oh my God. It was wonderful. Yeah, no, it was wonderful. Everything you were saying. And I have to say also, uh, we had George Bassana a pick for his favorite poem, a Yeats poem. So you couldn't have given us a better segue into his. And I, 
I loved everything you were saying because it was almost like you were looking at my show notes and staring them down about to like segue into George Sassana's poem. So I think that you make a really great point about connecting the, the language of every day and how Billy Collins writes in that so well. And in this time, Yates is doing exactly that too. Mm-hmm. And so there are so many parallels. Yeah. So I think... I think then we have to hear from George Pastana next Thank to read The Valley of the Black Pig. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I've always, uh, I've always really loved, uh, really loved Yeats. Um, and uh, I like this poem in particular. Sorry, George. I think we just had some weird technical glitch where I think it went quiet for everybody, um, unless I'm mistaken. So but would you mind turning over? I'm so sorry. That's all right. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, now it's good. Okay, yeah, that was kind of weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah, I've always I've always loved Yeats, but this particular poem, uh, I'm not. Sh- I, I like it because it's mysterious, and part of me likes it because it's not as well known as his other ones. Just that fact alone just makes me kind of like it. But um, so uh, I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, it's uh, the Valley of the Black Pig. The dews drop slowly and dreams gather. Unknown spears suddenly hurtle before my dream-awakened eyes, and then the clash of fallen horsemen and the cries of unknown perishing armies beat about my ears. We who still labor by the cromlech on the shore, the gray cairn on the hill, when day sinks drowned in dew, being weary of the world's empires, bow down to you, master of the still stars and of the flaming door. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Would you talk a little bit about why you're so drawn to that particular poem? Well, um, again, I'm not. I'm not really sure. I mean, I think my favorite phrase in there, which I think I, I read that I first read this when I was in college, um, and uh, we were we were given a, a you know obviously we had a book of Yeats poetry and various ones were selected out of there. And of course, I, I read read the whole book. I didn't want to just read the the, the ones that they specified. And I came across this one and I thought, oh, I really like this one. But I think, I think what speaks to me is at the time was the phrase being wary of the world's empires. That kind of, that's, that, I don't know, at the time it spoke to me, but also the very fact that it was somewhat mysterious, you know, it's like, what is the valley of the black pig? Why a black pig it has, has kind of a, uh, a sinister feeling to me, especially with, you know, master of the still stars and of the flaming door. And I'm, I'm bowing down to this black pig, you know, kind of, it makes me wonder: Is this is this the devil? Am I, you know, bowing down to the devil? But it doesn't quite say that, you know. Um, but uh, I don't know. I just, I just, I like it. I, I don't want to say it's my favorite because kind of, kind of like what Tim was saying earlier. I don't really have a favorite, but it's one of my favorites. It's one I like to go back to and reread. So uh, I, I know I shared it once before in a different space. I don't, I don't remember which one, but uh, I thought I would share that one. Yeah, I remember that you shared it before, but I just thought it was such a good poem that I didn't say anything. I didn't know if you remembered you shared it before or not, but I think it was uh, it was definitely worth sharing. And so Tim was having an issue with his mic, I believe, because he has surfaced and is now sitting by me. Yeah, we're on we're on speakerphone now. Hopefully, so. it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you want to go? Next? Do you want me to do do uh, the comments? Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious. Just I'm interested in hearing you know why people like their favorite poems the most you know that's what's most like what makes a favorite poem is the most interesting question to me it's always like a profound uh you know a profound connection to to something on a deeper level you know Mm -hmm. like a deeper truer truth 
And uh, so, so my favorite tend to be poems that I can, you know, look back on sort of philosophically when you're sort of struggling at a point in life or you need to be reminded of how to live, those kind of things. And that first poem, Song, was more on an emotional level. But there are a lot of poems that work on a, um, I don't know, on a musical level that way. One of my favorites, too, is um, by Cummings, um, Into the Strenuous Briefness. Do you know that poem? Uh, yes. I do, and you have it right here, so I'm going to pin it to the top. of. The, and so anybody that wants to – this is a particularly good one if you are uh, live on the space instead of in the podcast to read along to, of course. With it. That's true of any E.E. E. Cummings poem, I think. Well, the thing with E.E. E. Cummings, I think that his – all of his play with the language on the page gets in the way of mm-hmm. – um, of how musical his his lines are, mm-hmm. and, and this poem, I think. Do you know the um, the great yes and the great no poem, the Cavafy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this poem sort of says the same thing. You know, like in this, we all have the great yes. I mean, maybe the, the Cavafy is right here. Let me uh, let me read that too. The, the Cavafy is um, for some people the day comes when they have to declare the great yes or the great no. It's clear at once who has the yes ready within him, and saying it, he goes from honor to honor, strong in his conviction. He who refuses does not repent, asks again, he'd still say no. Yet that no, the right no, drags him down all his life. And so it's such a, you know, poems are, are mind tools, they're mantras. And and having that to go back on is something important, you know, to help guide you through life. And that was the original purpose of poetry through the oral tradition. Um, and that Kevithy poem is great in its message, but there's not a lot of music in it. Yeah. And the, uh, the poem that I love by uh, E. E. Cummings says the same thing, but in such a musical, imagistic way that sort of uh, makes Cavafy kind of pound comparison, even though it's the, the same concept. And so it's really, it's pretty short. Into the strenuous briefness, life, hand organs in April darkness, friends I charge laughing, into the hair-thin tints of yellow dawn, into the woman-colored twilight I smilingly glide, I into the big vermilion departure swim sayingly. Do you think the I do world is probably made of roses and hello of so longs and ashes? Mm. And so that's just a a lesson in life compressed into that poem, you know, to take the time that you have and and make the most of it, to say the great yes rather than the great no, to be, you know, Abel and not Cain, etc. And, um, I know it's a good poem to come back to. And that's one of the things that, you know, it seems to me that the best poems are all ways of getting at that. And even the, the lighter poems, like a Billy Collins, his, his great poems are all sort of sneaking up on the profound, you know, but that's what makes them, them great too, is that they still have that, that profound nature to them. I love the concept of sneaking up on the profound. I think that that honestly really nails it in all the poems that I love the most. It doesn't feel like you're running headlong into it and crashing, you know, but you're, you're having time to sneak up on it. And, you know, often using for me, using humor to get there, which Billy Collins obviously does, does a lot as well. I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's so many ways to do it. And of course, you know, comedy truth is at the heart of comedy too. And that's, that's something that they all, that everything has in common. It's always seeking some kind of truth. that's like just outside of our reach. And then we can reach for it through a poem or, mm-hmm. or through even a, you know, the court gesture, the stand up comic routine, it all works the same. Yeah. 
That does. All right. So let's see. Uh, Joe Barca sent in As If by Julie Kane to read. And I have to applaud you also, Joe, because as usual, you did an image of your marked up copy of this particular poem, which I'm going to pull up and pin <laughs> to the space. You know how I love that. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So, Katie, I think I'm going to read it first and kind of let the poem reveal itself and then we can chat about the poem or favorites or anything you want does that sound okay that sounds great all right as if by julie kane as if the corpse behind the crimes crime scene tape got up and took a bow where it dropped dead as if i got a phone call from the grave and asked its occupant to share my bed nine years ago we fought and split apart with our beloved city underwater i turned to short-term lovers in the dark you moved in with a southern judge's daughter. I love to pinch myself to prove you're back, though balder, ten pounds thinner, better dressed, as if the universe had jumped a track. No hurricane, no choices second-guessed. At times my ears pick up the strangest sound, as if the dead were clapping underground. Oh, that was a beautiful reading also. So I'm curious uh, to hear your thoughts on this poem and why it earned uh, three purple asterisks in the top left corner. Also, <laughs> it seems like an accolade I aspire to. Too funny. Well, first of all, this is not the answer th to your question, but Tim's reading was just sublime. So amazing. Thanks, Tim. Uh, but anyway, I uh, so you 10 years or so, I've been buying Best American Poetry. And so... The this is from Best American Poetry of 2016. And so any of these books is filled with amazing poetry. So the fact that this is that one poem from that year, or maybe all the years, it's one of my probably top five out of 10 years, says something. And, and you know, a favorite implies it's the only one. And I tend to think, for me, there are, honestly, there's many favorites. But this one resonates for a couple of reasons. One is, you can, what kind of poem is this, Katie? Can you guess? It's an American sonnet. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> I would say it also has 14 lines, not 13. So it's not a pure Katie it's sonnet. Not, but we is, do it, have is it meter, though? To, we might have a, a dissenting opinion sitting to my left. Is it meter? I don't think. As if no, the corpse behind it's a, it's a Shakespearean sonnet. You guys know better than I do. But it, <laughs> uh, yes. No, that's a good point. But I didn't think it was metered. Is it meter? I didn't catch it. I was so I was listening so intently to Joe's great voice reading this that I didn't even notice if it was metered. I mean, it is. It is an it's, AB yeah. rhyme scheme. It's Shakespearean. Okay. Well, yeah. that's embarrassing then. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you got the you, you got the answer right, Katie. It's the sun. It's so a couple of things. So, <laughs> and we all know that good rhyming is great stuff. So this is very original rhyming. We know this poem has a rhythm, which is a wonderful thing. We know this poem has humor. So. These are these are all the things which to me are, are both the art and the craft of a good poem. And it and it sticks with me and I remember it and I think about it and I've I've read it at other places uh, to other people. One interesting tidbit is I went out and bought her book, that one of her books, and I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. And so sometimes you find an author whose poem, one poem just resonates, but the other ones don't necessarily. But this one always sticks out in my mind. I just think I want to be able to write a sonnet like this someday. So that's why I love it, Katie. Well, those are all excellent reasons. And what I love about this poem, too, is how far it goes in only 14 lines. 
That's part mm-hmm. of why I like writing, you know, short poems too, is just because you can say like, hey, I went from this point to this point and only this number of words. So it feels like stronger in terms of that. I also uh, love the line, as if the universe had jumped a track. It's um, both concrete and abstract in a beautiful way at the same time. Absolutely. The other thing, Katie, my favorite line, which is the one before it, though balder, 10 pounds thinner, better dressed. You know, that's almost Colin-esque, if you know what I mean. Colin-esque. Yeah, yeah. it is. And it's like, and that sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, bald honesty mm-hmm. <laughs> allows the jump in the next line uh, without it being trite or melodramatic because it was in that grittier place just a moment ago. I sure. Think. And, and even though it didn't have kind of, or at least on the surface, the depth of the poem that Tim read, there's some real feelings here. There's some real angst. There's, it's a lot about a, a difficult times with relationship in 14 concise lines. So kudos to Julie Kane. Yeah, definitely. And she's a great poet. And uh, I should have her on the Rattlecast, actually. Yeah, this is just all you're doing is farming for <laughs> Rattlecast. <laughs> hey, here. I'm here to support Tim. Several times, but I should have her on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I think Mark Danowski didn't know if he'd be able to speak or not today, but it looks like you've accepted or sent a speaker request. I can't remember which one. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on all this, Mark. Hey, thanks, Katie. Good to be here. Uh, Yeah, lots of thoughts. Um, I just put something in the chat about it seems like maybe there's a little correlation, at least for me personally, between poems that give me chills and music that gives me chills (laughs) has like a sort of literal physical reaction um, that happens uh, and is sort of telling like a bodily sensation that's telling of you know what I really like Um, I was thinking about this uh, this morning and I have this sort of ongoing list I've kept for like over a decade of just favorite poems and uh it's interesting to see the range. Um, overall, it's pretty indicative of what people will see in one art. Um, but uh, it's, it seemed interesting to me the poems that, that stand out kind of the most as favorites. Um, just to name a couple, like Jane Kenyon's Happiness, Marie Howe's Hurry, Donald Hall's The Things, Major Jackson's How to Listen, Philip Larkin's The Mower, Jennifer Michael Hex on the Strength of All Conviction and the Stamina of Love, Kwame Dawes' Coffee Break, Tess Gallagher's Black Silk. Um, I don't know, I think it says kind of a lot about what I go for. Um, but then there are some longer poems, you know, like Larry Levis's Winter Stars, uh, just like from the first line, <laughs> you're just pretty taken with a poem like that. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm with... Uh, Tim and I think a lot of people speaking as well and that calling favorites are sort of like favorites for now um, and uh, just always oh, another point something I, that I had put uh, as a comment before was that from the editor position uh, like I was very reluctant to name favorites from the journal uh, but realize that in a way we kind of do that regardless if nominating for say the pushcart prize or best of the net um that you know even if you're trying to be a little objective and look for just what's the best work and what's most serving of an award uh inevitably you're also 
you know, choosing your playing favorites. <laughs> yeah, that difference between, uh, you know, the best poem and your favorite poem is really interesting. There's a lot of talk all the time about subjectivity within poetry and art. And I think um, the objectivity is really overlooked. or We, we sort of minimize that because it feels better to say, oh, it's all subjective. But there are, you know, good poems and not as good poems and on an objective level. But then what it does end up being on top of that is the other subjective level. And so the poems that resonate with you personally are different than resonate more with somebody else. But so there's these two layers. There's sort of an objective layer because we're all humans. We all inhabit language in the same way. And um, and then there's the subjective layer, which is what we personally you know, what it personally means to us because of our personal life experiences too. And I think it really, talking about favorites versus the awards is really interesting because that, that pulls that out. Like for the push cart, um, it, we very, you know, like, uh, intentionally, um, you know, I pick the, what I think are the best poems and then we sort of let uh, me, uh, Alan and Megan pick their, <laughs> their favorite. And then we have three more that are like the three other best poems. We kind of do it that way all the time. So one of the ones is like our personal favorite, but it is a big difference between what your personal favorite and what might be the best. Cause you can sort of see the objective side of what the most people will f- potentially think is their favorite versus what your favorite is individually. So when you say uh, an objective level, you're also speaking kind of like on a, on a craft level. And one of the things that you shared was that the sound by Kim Adonisio might be like what you think is, is perhaps the best sonnet. Is that fair, fair to yeah, say? This is my, it is my favorite. And Julie Kane's poem is so similar too. Mm-hmm. And the, what I love is the really harsh interplay between form and not form. Mm-hmm. And so I love all the slant rhymes and a few lines weren't even rhymes, even though mm-hmm. they should be like one was, I think it was, what was it? Daughter. And I can't remember. It's not up anymore, but, but there are two, you know, one rhyme that was really far away that like right. barely had the same vowel sound. Right. And then other ones were closer. So there's a lot of variation within the rhymes mm-hmm. and, um, and I like a lot of enjambment. So you kind of hear the music of the, the meter, but then mm-hmm. you also don't. Mm-hmm. And I always think of the sound by Kim and Into. I read it on a space before, I think, on our sonnet space. Yeah, but, but if you want me that's to read it again, right. I'd be happy Sounds to. like you're going to, because I've already <laughs> pinned it to the top, and I'm, okay. I'm elbowing you, telling you you're going to read it is okay. also a clue. <laughs> yeah, so, so I just love it. I mean, this is a sonnet, and every line is in jam except the last two. Um, and a lot of them are in jam, like after we, like in places that you wouldn't have an enjambment usually. And so, um, so it really creates a lot of, like, tension between – the form, the meter, and then the, uh, the voice itself. So uh, this is the sound. Mark says the suffering that we don't see still makes a sort of sound, a subtle, soft noise, nothing like the, cr- the cries of screams that we might think of. More the slight scrape of a hat doffed by a quiet man, ignored as he stands back to let a lovely woman pass, her dress just brushing his coat. Or else it's like a crack in an old foundation, slowly widening, the stress and slippage going on unnoticed by the family upstairs, the daughter leaving for a date, her mother's resigned sigh when she sees her. It's like the heaving of a stone into a lake before it drops. It's shy. It's barely there. It never stops. Oh, it's such a good poem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that, that poem doesn't resonate with me on a, an emotional level, though, which yeah. is what's interesting about it. It's just that on the craft, on the music side of it, it's mm-hmm. so beautifully done. The way, I mean, like, I love that, the, the enjambment there of the, the subtle, soft noise. Mm-hmm. Like, after an adjective like that is, mm-hmm. is something that nobody ever, you know, tries to, that's not a clean, hard line break to right. have. Right. And so it really pulls you through and makes you not hear that music. But then the music is still there the whole time. Like, we can't avoid it. Um, and after the the we in the next line too, mm-hmm. and um, 
And so I just, I just love the, uh, the, the sounds of that poem. I think it's just perfectly done. And that's just what I, it's not like my favorite poem because it means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite poem because it's like, that's what I aspire to do musically with a poem mm-hmm. when I write my own poems. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a different kind of favorite, but that's a, a way of, of mm-hmm. talking about your favorite. Maybe though too, the more you know about a subject, the more you can differentiate among, this is my favorite type of this that's like this. Like you have to add continually more categories. So presumably you probably have a lot of categories there, Tim. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> Yeah, you do. All right. So we've had those poems, and then we could go to that one. Sorry. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Okay. And then we also, if we end up with a little bit more time at the end, uh, my favorite poem is a very long poem. It's not that long. <laughs> it's long for you. It's an epic. <laughs> but uh, so we might get into that. But but first, since uh, Dick Westheimer, since you were kind enough to share two poems and we have enough time, I would love for you to also share The Bering Beetle by Ada Limon uh, as well, which is another excellent poem. Oh, gosh. Now I have to go find it here. I thought I was, I was <laughs> done with my uh, – um, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell – well, I'm looking for it. I'll tell you the story of how that came to be similarly as the – or – it was revealed to me by a poetry teacher, and 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 um, she uh, put this poem in our in our, our our syllabus. And it just just reading a poem, you know, you know, really reading poems on my own for the first time ever, and being blown away by them, especially in the early times, was just a really emotional experience. Um, uh, because uh, you know, I I didn't I I hadn't uh, taken myself to poetry except when folks had shared like, oh, you should read this Wendell Berry poem, or oh, you should you know. Um, but this this was like reading a poem and being moved by it because it moved me. Um, so let me find the poem here. I apologize. Uh, no apologies. If you want, you can click. I pinned it to the top of the space, so I don't know if it's a convenient way for you to see it, but it is. You know, I've never, I've never figured out how to get to those poems pinned at the top of the space. Um, so uh, I, I try to work it on my – anyway. I so think here, you're doing great, Dick. Don't worry about it. You made a successful NFT video poem. You're a technical <laughs> guru by any so, definition. So here we go. Using up, using up my free New Yorker uh, – um, my uh, free New Yorker points here. The Burying Beetle. I like to imagine even the plants want attention. So I weed for four hours straight – assuring the tomatoes feel July's hot breath on the neck and the Japanese maple can stretch, the sweet potato spider plants, the Asiatic lilies can flourish in this place we've dared to say we own. Each nicked spindle of morning glory or kudzu or purslane or yellow rocket, barbaria vulgaris for Christ's sake. And I find myself Missing, oh shoot, uh, missing everyone I know. I don't know why. First come the piles of nutsage and creeper, and then an ache that fills the skin like the uh, Kirkospora blight that's killing the blue skyrocket juniper slowly from the inside out. Sure, 
I know what it is to be lonely, but today's special is a physical need to be touched by someone decent, a pulsing palm to the back. My man is in South Africa still, and people just keep dying, even when I try to pretend they're not. The crown vetch and the curly dock are almost eliminated as I survey the neatness of my work. I don't feel I deserve this time or the small plot of earth I get to mold into someplace livable. I lost God a while ago, and I don't want to pray, but I can picture the plants deepening right now into the soil, wanting to live, so I lie down among them in my ripped pink tank top, filthy and covered in sweat among the red burying beetles and the dirt that's been turned and turned like a problem in the mind. So I I, I think what what enchanted me about the poem, once again, you know, as a beginning writer of poetry and reader of poetry, is just how how it jumps from place to place. And yet, as a reader, I'm never lost. And of course, I was attracted to this notion of bodies rotting into soil, right? You know, that that sort of, you know, uh, notions that, that as a gardener, um, I've been sitting with for many years. Um, but it was just really this this bold honesty about relationships and time and about her missing and all kind of tied up with the you know the the um, what happens when your knees and hands are are really dirty from kneeling in the dirt. Yeah, that's a beautiful poem. It's interesting to compare the two poems that you listed as your favorites because. Uh... You know, to see that the, what they have in common and what they don't. You know, so different ways you can get at uh, becoming Dick Westheimer's favorite poem. Mm. Well, I, I'd be interested to hear hear you say what they have in common, not because I'm still. You know, one of the things that really excited me about today is I read that E. e. Cummings poem that you posted over on Facebook and went, "What's this about?" And then I thought, I can't wait to hear what this is about. So I'd I'd be very eager to hear hear how this works for you. Um, well, I, you know, they both, like I was saying before, they both, I, to me, get at the profound from a from an angle, you know. And the one of them, the the Ada Limone poem, uses you know imagery and sort of builds you into that scene, whereas the Billy Collins uses that casual voice and kind of like the lightheartedness of it to to get into something profound. I think that's what they both do to me. Yeah, yeah, I would say too that they both have that that grittiness, you know, and that's uh, something that. You know, you do very well in your own poems, Dick, when, when writing, you know, is getting, you know, having that grounded level and then reaching up way higher um, and embracing the really small moments of life that, you know, hint to the much bigger moments of life. Well, I, I guess I guess I am narrow casting my writing to be like poems that I like. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's something to aspire. You know, I yeah. mean, it's a question as an editor you think about, too, is like, does every poem have to be someone's favorite poem when you publish it? That's something I think about a lot. Like, because you want variety, you want people to be surprised. There's a, there's ways psychologically that it works better if not every poem sort of hits the same level, because there's that sort of slot machine effect. To be honest, where you know if you don't know how much you're going to love a poem, mm -hmm. then you love the ones you love more. And so there's an interesting way that that plays out. But so it's a question of like, should every poem reach for that that 
you know, favorite poem level or should poems have room to just be more fun or, or just be, um, you know, work on different, different ways that's, that's not as, um, you know, that's shooting for sort of immortality, I guess, is what a favorite poem is doing. I would say to go back to your plating metaphor, sometimes you want the tasting menu or the four course meal, and sometimes you want Kraft Mac and cheese, and both are amazing. Can I make a personal comment about that? Please, um, yeah. Uh, so um, I had a, you know, poem come up in the poem of a day on Rattle, the very somewhat light poem about the you know, the, the poem going out on the town. And I had a lot of folks, re which is one of my favorite poems that I've written. And I had a lot of folks respond like, oh, I liked that poem, but not like, you know, it didn't move me like these other ones. And that's very much what you're talking about. Sometimes a poem just wants to go out on the town, you know? And, <laughs> yeah, that, that's um, a great point. That, that poem does embody exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect yeah, timing. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, and it does pop in my head sometimes a poem too. Like if I find, like if I if I'm writing and I find a poem going in a weird direction, it will pop into my head like, well, sometimes a poem just you know needs to go to the carnival. <laughs> so I think now we are going to allow us to go slightly over because of the technical issues that uh, Tim is going to thankfully edit out of the podcast version but thanks to everybody for sticking it out <laughs> in our live space but i think um i am going to ask him i'm going to put him on the spot and ask him to read one of his own poems one of my own poems. one of your own poems i'm going to ask you to read because genuinely guys this is one of my all-time favorite poems and uh it is a noble gas which you wrote in response to one of your own prompts for the Rattlecast. I don't remember what the prompt was, though. Um, to talk about every place you've ever lived, I think. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I was supposed to be going through step-by-step, uh, step, but we had, I think we both had like 23 Yeah, it turned out we lived exactly number of places. Yeah, so yeah. I decided to uh, go with the theme instead of the thing. Actually, I, this is the kind of train poem that uh, I don't know where I'm going. I just wrote down that everywhere I've ever lived and then wrote whatever came out. And you read it really fast too. Like, I did, well, you write fast. all your poems really fast. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I sit around for a long time first, but anyway, this is, <laughs> this is a noble gas and I'm curious to see why it's your favorite. But... <laughs> okay. A noble gas. Everywhere I've ever lived is tucked inside a blue balloon loosened in a child's hand. She's standing in her fourth grade field. Her classmates coming down. The soccer lines look almost real beneath her feet in pain painted grass, an unseen bee inspects a clover, waiting for the shade to pass, when all at once their strings let go, as if the sky itself could gasp, and everywhere I've ever lived is pressing on the inner walls and pulling up her written note, and when you find it tangled in the neighbor's fence, I hope you'll call the number and tell whoever answers where it went. Okay, well, I love this poem because it's clearly awesome. <laughs> I love it because, uh, again, it, it tells like a... First of all, it's an extended metaphor, you know, that tells a real story that feels like it's just a real story. And then you're like, but wait, this has to have way more significance because it is a poem and it's going somewhere. And you titled it great, too. And then I, I love um, I love the line as if the sky itself could gasp. I think it's really beautiful and I wish I could steal it. Uh, well, it is. I, I think I mentioned on a space before, but I judge my own poems based on how much I managed to surprise myself. Mm -hmm. 
And, I, you know, it's, it's so um, and this is a poem. I love it where I don't know what's going to happen and then something does. And that did happen in this poem. So I like it a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Well, good. <laughs> That's great. And then um, we've talked a lot about Lee Young Lee in the spaces as reaching, you know, this place. I think for me, very, very much, very consistently, perhaps even more consistently than any other poet really of reaching this really profound place that to me resonates on a favorite poem type level of what my four course meal poem, Lee Young Lee knows how to cook, that kind of a thing. So I think it would be great if, um, if you were up for reading Lee Young Lee, and then maybe I'll close it out with a the longest poem I've ever read in the space. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, this Lee Young Lee, it's my favorite poem in Rattle, I think. And partly because of the story behind it. So we interviewed Lee Young Lee, you know, almost 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, for issue number 21. And um, one of the first things I worked on was actually that issue as an editorial assistant. And um, in the interview, um, Lee Young mentions waking up in the middle of the night and trying to find a poem because there was a line came to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the poem didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But later following up, we said, hey, did that, you ever write that poem? Mm-hmm. And he did, and this was it. And I think the line, <laughs> if I remember right, was the first two lines. And he, so he was like, you know, working on that in his head and couldn't sleep because of it. So knowing wow. that, and then it's such a beautiful poem that came of that sort wow. of sleepless night, the night before the interview with Rattle makes it um, an especially good poem. But Lee Young Lee, just in general, like The City in Which I Love You is one yeah. of my favorite books. Yeah. And I think on my Facebook page, like three or four people mentioned Lee Young Lee, different yeah. poems is their right. favorite. Because yeah. he writes, you know, with such beauty and such depth and, you know, sort of personal emotion too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rose is a great book as well. But anyway, this is uh, Seven Happy Endings. Love, 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 where are we now? Where did we begin I think one of us wanted to name this, wanted to call it something. Shadows on the garden wall, a man rowing alone out to sea, a song in search of a singer. I think that was me. I wanted to call it something. And you, you were happy with a room, two rooms and a door to divide them. The daylight on the other side of the door, borrowed music from an upstairs room. And bells, bells from down the street, bells to urge our salty hearts. But I wanted to call it something. I needed to know what we meant when we said we, when we said us, when we said this. So call it seven happy endings. That would have been enough. You see, I woke up one night and realized I was falling. I turned on the lamp and the lamp was falling. And the hand that turned on the lamp was falling. And the light was falling. And everything the light touched falling. And you were falling asleep beside me. That was the first happy ending. And the last one, it went something like this. A child sat down, opened a book, and began to read. And what he read out loud came to pass. And what he kept to himself stayed on the other side of the mountains. But I promise seven happy endings. I who know nothing about endings. I who am always at the beginning of everything. Even as our being together always feels like beginning. Not just the beginning of our knowing each other, but the beginning of reality itself. See how you and I make this room so quiet with our presence. With every word we say, the room grows quieter. With every word, we keep ourselves from speaking even quieter. And now I don't know where we are, still needing to call it something. A clock, the bees on earth, gathering the overspilled minutes. Oh. Yeah, so that's a, just a beautiful one about the, you know, dissolution of a marriage and mm-hmm. falling out of love. And mm-hmm. I, I think, if I remember right, he got divorced later from his wife at the time, shortly after, uh, mm-hmm. like a year or two after writing this poem well it's, it's really fascinating to know the backstory too of him waking up and and having this poem in there that needed to be unearthed 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, should I chance to read my favorite poem? I think you Timothy should Green? because uh, you know, we can go over and if people want to bail out, that's fine. But I don't think they should. I don't think they should because it's my favorite poem. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So this is a poem I've talked about loving a lot before. Let's see. So this is published in Rattle. I should pin it to the top. I should not do this thing where like, I forget to pin my own, the poems I'm reading. Why don't you talk about when you publish this poem or anything with that while I pin it? Uh, well, we, I mean, we love David Kirby. It's another one of his braid poems. Um, one of his, another, um, what was the poem that was in um, Best American Poetry that we published? Uh, with the horse. With the horse. And yeah. The, yeah, I can't remember. This one's better. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I, uh, you know, I nominated this for a Pushcart Prize, and yeah. I'm hoping it was in Best American Poetry. I do think it's even better than his other poem that was um, really popular that we published. But, but David Kirby has a style of braiding several different topics together and weaving in and out of them um, that really add that it's almost like a, there's cuts and cuts and cuts within the poem. Like it's a massive haiku almost because it has those yeah. juxtapositions between the different threads he's braiding together. And that's one of the, one of the poems that works really well on that level. And there's just so much momentum behind it too. I think yeah. it's a great, it builds and builds and builds. It's a great poem. And when you had him on the Rattlecast, he spoke about how he kind of creates a form for his own poems as a way of him, making him edit edit himself in a way, kind of, I think was what you guys covered. Yeah, yeah. He has these sort of almost arbitrary shapes that he makes his stanzas, mm-hmm. and that forces him to cut things and think more on a different level about the, the line length and the sounds and things like that. Yeah, and also I should say um, David Kirby also is one of my professors uh, at Florida State when I study poetry, so it has that bit of connection, too, which makes me, I think, like it even more. So I should stop procrastinating. Go ahead. Yep, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So this is David Kirby. The fates. A child is born. It's you. Family and friends stop by, and then the whole neighborhood, it seems, including three women who sit in the corner and smile and nod at anyone who says hello, though mainly they keep to themselves, nibbling the cookies someone else has brought and sipping tea. And then the one nearest the window takes a ball of yarn out of her purse and gives it to the one in the middle who is knitting something. Booties, a little cap, as the third woman just sits there, a pair of scissors in her lap. Ten years later, and you're in school now, and even the lunchroom ladies are in a good mood as you step toward a table with an empty place, and an aide says, let me clean that for you, and wipes the table down and pats you on the shoulder before she heads to the break room where her two friends wait. Your first job, you're behind the counter in a department store, showing a watch to a woman who's buying someone a present, and she pays you and puts the watch in her purse and waves to a woman at the perfume counter who hurries over and says, come on, we're late, she'll be waiting for us at the restaurant. It's sunny at cool the day you marry, and the venue costs more than your dad had in mind, but the ceremony goes off without a hitch, and the band is cranking the oldies so everyone will get out on the dance floor, and they're all a little tipsy, and if your aunt's friends are screeching so loudly as they do the electric slide that you can barely hear the music, it's a wedding, right? Anything goes. In New York, a man whose manuscript has been rejected 20 times is walking down Madison Avenue when he's bumped off the sidewalk by a gaggle of women who don't seem to notice him, and a car slams on its brakes, and the driver is a classmate he hasn't seen for years who has recently become an editor with a trade press, and the man gets in the car, and by the end of the month, he has a book deal, and after 20 years and dozens of books in print, he thinks, if I hadn't stepped out into the street, I'd be in the dry cleaning business now. 
In Africa, a man emerges from the jungle, his bag dripping blood. It was a good day, and now his bag bulges with bats, rats, chimps, even a snake or two. Others have died, like the hunters who had cooked and eaten the carcass of a gorilla they found in the jungle. But who would do that? Bats are healthy. Look at them soar from tree to tree. At the market, the man's wife spread the bush meat on a cloth and began to bargain. A ferry sinks off the coast of South Korea, and among the dead are seven crew members, including three women who gave their life jackets to passengers. Your own children are born. They, too, go to school, to work, get married. You have a long life, a good one. You weren't the kid who got picked up by a guy who was driving a stolen car and sent to juvie for being an accessory. You weren't the one who tried to break up the fight and got knocked down on the sidewalk and hit your head and never stood up again. You weren't those people. Your accidents were good accidents, and when they weren't, you learned from them. A nurse comes in and takes a tube out of your arm as another adjusts your ventilator, and a third says the doctor will be in soon, and the nurse's names are Clotho, who spins the web of life, and Lachesis, who measures it, and Atropos, who cuts that thread when your life is over. And as they make a fuss... You think how poetry entered you and became like a mistress in her own home, one who would not summon but injured your body of her own accord, this force into which everything work, the sound of tires on pavement, home, birds, rocks, love, the whole world entered easily and made itself comfortable, stanzas rising and falling one after another in a way that was always sure-footed, always a surprise. The world rushed in at the speed of a comet with everything shouting, take me, and no, no, take me. And all this without you ever having written a single line of poetry in your entire life, though along the way you learned to think like a poet, to take this over that, to begin here and end there, and then the other way around until at last you could see your life as it really is and make sense of it or at least as much sense as one can. And now you are opening your eyes for the first time. And now you are eating. And now you are walking from one side of the room to the other. And now you are a little bi- girl on her bicycle flying out into the sunlit world. Yeah, catch your breath. That's a great Ooh, poem and great reading of it. It's hard to read Thank a poem you. that long. That was a wonderful <laughs> reading, Katie. Thank you. <laughs> I've read it a few times, uh, not out loud before ever. <laughs> yeah, it's something to read a poem that long out loud. <laughs> and it's, it's just, and I love too his use of the second person. You mm-hmm. know, that's one of the things like on the critique of the week, talk about trying to avoid unless you have a real good reason to do it. Mm-hmm. And that direct address to the reader where he's predicting your life yeah. is kind of a, you know, a, the hypnotist trick too, yeah. to sort of, you know, make things true in your own head mm-hmm. and get you engaged with the poem too. It works really well on that level, telling the whole history and future of humanity all in one poem. It's yeah. really cool. And he makes it so universal. It takes everyone's unique experience and shows how universal it is and how connected we all are. It's just, it's so much um, for what he accomplishes in that poem. It makes me think maybe I should try to write longer poems. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, I think, oh, we should say um, what we are going to talk about next week. Yeah, next week is Katie's favorite topic. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about money. In poetry. Money and poetry. <laughs> yeah, money and poetry. So there, this is just something that's continually coming up. You know, a lot of times it's, it's in reference to our NFTs evil because people are trying to sell their poems. And I think that uh, there will be a lot, a lot of different opinions on mm-hmm. this. And I'm excited for the debate. And we're just going to solve the whole thing. Yeah, it is. It's such an interesting topic. I mean, I've, I'm, I've been wanting to say uh, that 
the currency of poetry is actually attention and not any kind of monetary Well, good luck eating attention for dinner there, <laughs> Exactly. Green. Whether it's, well, I don't know. These days, though, attention, you can monetize attention. So there's that too. But, um, but yeah, it is something that we sort of don't like to talk about really, you yeah. know, so with all the submission fees and, mm-hmm. you know, some, you know, how much book sales are mm-hmm. not really doing much and, mm-hmm. you know, how much, just how little money there is there mm-hmm. and where the money comes from to make magazines and books and things right. like that. It's, um, it's an important topic because nothing works. You know, even a nonprofit is a business Yeah, and you have to figure out how to make money to keep going. And that's something really important too. Yeah, definitely. So bring your opinions. Definitely bring. I know I'll be bringing mine. I feel like I'm going to disagree with like everybody. (laughs) That's okay. I can stand my ground on that. So thanks you guys so much for coming and for sharing your favorite poems with us. I'm so inspired as a result of this space in particular, having gotten to read so many and hear from so many great readings of uh, some of my favorite poets in this room, reading some of my favorite poems. So thanks you guys so much. Yeah. Thanks everybody. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.